Welcome, welcome, welcome. How's everybody doing? Hope you are doing well. My name is Andrew Kuhn, Focused Compounding, sitting next to Jeff Gannon. Jeff, how goes it today? Uh, it's going very well. How is it going with you? It's going great. We hope it's going great for everybody else. If this is the first time you are tuning in, hit that subscribe button wherever you are watching or listening to the podcast. If you're watching us on YouTube right now, you will see that QuickFS is up on the screen. That is QuickFS.net. This is a software that Jeff and I use every single day to pull long-term financial data. When we first started plugging this, if you're watching, uh, they had 20-year financial data for companies in the United States and Canada, I believe at the time. Uh, but now they have Mexico, Australia, New Zealand, and then the United Kingdom. So it's great uh, software. People on Twitter, I'm always posting screenshots of like long-term data. And they're like, did you do that yourself? And I'm like, no, I clicked a button and pulled it. So go to QuickFS. And then when you are signing up, tell them that you came from Focus Compounding. And that helps support everything that we do on the podcast. So in today's podcast, we're going to talk about capital turns and what they generally mean and okay. what you typically look for and how you analyze, um, I guess, efficiencies at companies. Mm -hmm. So basically, like what Warren Buffett means when he talks about them. Um, Warren Buffett, when he talks about capital turns, he's really talking about sales divided by net tangible assets. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the businesses that Buffett has bought for Berkshire, you would be surprised and at the fact that they don't really, I mean, like Apple aside and maybe like Coca-Cola aside, they don't really have high margins. Um, but what they do have is higher sales per dollar of assets that's in the business. Mm -hmm. um, do you typically look, is this like the, for one of the first things that you look for when it comes to like efficiencies? Yes. When you're looking at the companies and maybe you could explain the rationale behind that and then we'll go from there. Yeah. So Buffett uses the term net tangible assets all the time, which often is used on sites like uh, QuickFS and things like that as invested capital or uh, invested in tangible capital. Um, so they're taking out basically cash uh, for the most part. That's what they're talking about is that they, you know, because he then can decide what to do with it at Berkshire when he's buying a business or a stock. Um, so for the turns, the things that are important there are something like his purchase of Nebraska Furniture Mart, right? Low gross margin business we talked about in the capital allocation book when we talked about the Nebraska, uh, Nebraska Furniture Mart stuff, um, but very high turns. And, so, and also low operating expenses because they had a lot of sales um, per dollar of net tangible uh, assets. And so they're able to have good returns versus companies like Walmart and all of that while having much lower gross margins, meaning they're having lower prices. Mm -hmm. um, I talked about distributors a little bit. I've seen lots of write-ups about distributors that say the gross margins of this distributor are better than that distributor when their business model is different. And if you were to plot them on a graph, what you'll see is the higher the turns, the lower the gross margins and vice versa. So it tends to be that the returns on invested capital are closer to each other than you would think from the gross margins. So if you have slow moving inventory, you usually have to have pretty high gross margins on it. And if you have fast moving inventory, then you can have lower gross margins on it. And that's what we're talking about, like supermarkets and stuff like that. People always say, you know, supermarkets have bad gross margins. It's true. But if they turn it much faster than other companies, then they could have pretty high gross profits divided by net tangible assets. And I do talk a lot about gross profitability, meaning that any business you look at, even when it's very small business, right, you want to have a pretty high gross profit divided by uh, total assets or the, the best measure really is net tangible assets. Um, if that number is really low, it's hard no matter how big the business gets for it to turn into a good business, mm -hmm. you know. Uh, it's possible, I guess, depending on if you improve some stuff, but scale alone probably isn't going to fix that problem. But gross margins being low isn't necessarily uh, terrible 
because there are businesses, whether it's supermarkets, whether it's a Walmart or a Nebraska furniture mart that are based on low prices, but high turns. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, whenever a company has high return on net tangible assets, you as a shareholder want growth. Uh, whenever a company has growth, you as a shareholder want high return on net tangible assets. And you've written about this before, how the combination is key and how it makes sense to avoid companies with high growth and low, low returns on net tangible assets and just focus in general on companies with high growth and high returns on net tangible assets. And we could talk a little bit right. about that. And Buffett has talked about this too when he talks about the survival of the fattest mm -hmm. is what he calls it. And he says a high volume, low margin business could sometimes turn into a survival of the fattest situation. Um, you know, like distributors and stuff like that. Right. And yeah, exactly. And Nebraska Furniture Mart basically drove everyone out of that market and took, you know, and discouraged other people from moving into the market for that reason too. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and to your point about the grocery stores, um, you know, there are a lot of advantages of doing a lot of volume in one place. And actually this reminds me a lot of like banking and stuff like that as well, mm -hmm. how there's a lot of cost efficiencies. Uh, but you have written about how grocery stores often they compete on turns instead of on margins. Right. Um, and how most grocers will not depend on a strategy that requires them to have better margins than the than the competition to win in their market. Instead, they will try to drive more traffic per store rather than specifically drive margin improvement. So really getting back to like the whole yeah. turns in the business. And and so they're they're kind of equally important. I don't want to stress that like turns even in groceries and stuff matter more than margins. Mm -hmm. But what you'll notice is that a lot of write-ups and a lot of times when people talk about things, they mention margins and they don't mention turns. They don't have a row in the data that says, and this is how fast they're turning over stuff. Um, and that's important. So when we say turns, there's a few different ways of talking about that. But when we use the term, basically we mean how many times you go through a sale of the same asset item. So like you take a dollar of inventory that's on the books right now. How many times is that dollar of inventory going to be replenished by buying another dollar and so on throughout the year? That's one way of looking at it. So you could say if something turns six times a year, you know, um, and you have a 20% gross margin or something, then you're gonna have 120% gross return on that one balance sheet item that you're seeing that $1 of inventory. Um, the other way of thinking about it, which might be easier to envision yourself if you're visiting a business or whatever, is days, right? Mm -hmm. So instead you take that, that instead of saying six turns, what you're saying is you take 12 months divided by six, it's turning every two months. Mm -hmm. And so in the example of like the, um, the grocery store thing, uh, overall, they're they're mixing a lot of different things in there. Uh, you know, they're selling lots of different things that have different speeds of how quickly they're turning. But some of the highest return on capital grocery stores, uh, supermarkets in the U.S. do have uh, things that turn as fast as like ten days or something like less than two weeks, so they actually own the item before it, it sells through. And so that allows you to have very low margins and still have a good return. But it also shows you the big difference of that you can imagine this with a supermarket. This is why I mentioned supermarkets because they're the easiest for people to think of. The advantages that have. Um, if you go to that store, you want to have items that have just been bought and brought in in the last 10 days or something. And you know when you go to a store and uh, there's stale inventory there. Uh, whether that is on fashionable inventory, stuff they bought too much of that's, that they couldn't sell, uh, inventory that's the wrong flavors and the wrong whatever that isn't selling a lot, or literally just produce and things that are not selling through fast enough. Yeah, so and, not the freshest. and related to like fashion, what do they do? Or I guess even food as well, right? They discount it to sell right. it as quickly as possible. And that, that's the weird thing you see with those with gross margins, right? So take fashion, that's a good example, or electronics, uh, new electronic stuff falls in the same category. Initially, the gross margin on the item is actually very high. So like the reported gross margin on like a teen retailer or something is taking into account having to mark down stuff. So if you buy popular clothing items, the margin is huge on those. 
but the margin is not so good on the stuff that literally has to be sold to make room for other stuff because it's now fall and they didn't sell in the spring. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, it's also interesting. It's a good spot check as well. When you are looking at a company, we always say to uh, the best way to learn about an industry or learn about a company is to also read like five of its closest peers or just other companies mm-hmm. in general in the same industry. So if you're looking at the business and maybe their capital turns or their inventory turns are completely different from other businesses that you would consider to be more efficient, it could be a way to kind of go down that path as like an investigative journalist and be like, okay, well, why is that? What's going on here? Right. And so the things that you could look for are um, the, the mainly they're two items. So they're going to be offset on the other side when we talk about return on invested capital and stuff like that. But in terms of the assets, we'll just talk about with mainly two items from us business you're going to look at. Receivables are going to be important and inventory. And then um, the third item that you're going to have is property plan and equipment. And it is important to keep that in mind in terms of turns, even though it doesn't really make sense. You're not selling your property plan and equipment. But the reason why is that... Um, you, if you can lower the amount of PP&E you have to use to generate sales from an economic perspective, that's just as advantageous as reducing your receivables and your inventory. Um, and then there will be some businesses like service businesses, certain service businesses, um, uh, consumer services that have extremely low receivables, basically none, uh, don't really have much in the way of inventory, but often will be heavy on PP&E. So if you can do a lot of business, you have a lot of scale there, then you'll you'll have really big advantages. Um, and then you have other businesses like manufacturing things where a lot of very high volume will reduce probably your PP&E relative to sales, but it will not so much reduce your inventory and receivables. Um, and you can also see some things about bargaining power that we've talked about. Um Certain companies will insist on different payment terms and things like that. And so this is something that shows up sometimes if you're only serving a few customers or something like that, like you have a lot of customer supplier concentration, it could cause you problems that way. And that might explain why your days of sales of things are off. Um, The other one is uh, accounting controls and stuff, how financially sophisticated the company is and how much they're paying attention to that and how disciplined they are about it. Like with working capital and stuff. Yeah. Mm -hmm. A lot of that really is their own choice of how professionally they run it. And you could have my biggest concern usually when looking at things like poor turns of inventory, for instance, is you look at like a 20 year chart, like you can get a quick FS, you know, like a table and compared to other things in the industry for certain niche things, it might make sense. Right. So like long term Tandy or something like that, high gross margins, low turns makes sense. It's a hard to find item and stuff. That's why you're able to price it strongly. And it's why um, you have to have a lot of inventory because you have to have those hard to find niche items, right? But it's not like it's perishable either. Right, exactly. But everything can be perishable if there's any fashion risk and stuff in the industry, Mm -hmm. or if you're just buying wrong. And so there does build up a risk over time of that as being a problem. Um, And so it is a difference. And clothing things and stuff are a good example of that too. Um, there's a much lower risk in inventory of, um, like Hanes brands and things like that, which is basically selling underwear and t-shirts and bras and things, um, of that nature rather than, um, even something that's in like athletic wear stuff. Um, so your Under Armour and your Nike and your, uh, Adidas and that stuff. And then even further from that, truly fashion things, right? So they might look like they're the same things, but so much more of your lines have things that change from year to year. If you have stuff that doesn't change much, Tandy historically didn't have a lot of items that changed, right? That's the important thing, but it still can have inventory problems that way. And then you move into things like electronics and stuff. It's very possible that what's you're seeing if it turns decrease is not that everything across 
all their products are having decreasing turns, but they're literally having some obsolescent inventory they're not writing off fast enough. And when you get um, restatements of inventory, uh, a lot of times that's what it is, that really they knew that they had too much inventory of stuff they didn't sell and they didn't get rid of it. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, so what you really want to look for is just strong gross margins and strong or good enough capital turns at the business. What's that TV show? The Profit? Is that it? What's the name of it? Where he goes with Marcus Lemonis, the business things. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. that would be a good. I, 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 that would be a good example of that kind of thing. Because if you are dealing with a, here's what happens with small businesses usually, they can turn a profit. I mean, not all of them do. Some have a bad idea and stuff, but they turn a profit, but they're about to go bankrupt and they don't understand why. Yeah, and it's because of working capital issues of turns, and often it's because someone keeps buying inventory. There can be other reasons, but they keep buying inventory without knowing if it's selling. And as soon as they make a sale, they then go and buy more inventory. Now, in theory, if they're a great buyer, like in the Dollar General uh, book, you know, mm-hmm. my, my father's business or whatever, um, that one, if you keep making really smart buys all the time, then yes, you'll be out of cash all the time, but your business will do okay over time. You get a relationship with the bank and it'll work out. But if you make some poor purchases, uh, you can end up in a situation where at the end of the day, it seems like you're reporting a profit, but you're not. Uh, you're really in danger, and especially small businesses because they don't have access to a bank that would give them a lot of credit mm-hmm. um, to get them through if they were showing a profit but were unable to generate capital. I think they talked about that in um, uh, the Nike book as well, Phil Knight. I think at one point he was – is that his name, Phil Knight? Yeah. He was talking about at one point they were speaking to their bank, and they were doing so much of business, but they were basically bankrupt. And he's like, what? What's going on here? What's mm-hmm. – you know, why, why is that? Virgin um, had the same problem. It's weird how a lot, and especially if there's growth involved yeah. as well. So you're having to reinvest that growth and stuff like that. I mean, you look at a company like Seize Candies. I mean, how much does their capital well, you so think that, turn over? That was the huge advantage, right? So Seize mm-hmm. is a seasonal business that had very low use of, of net tangible assets. was mm-hmm. a big part of their advantage. So nice gross margins because you could price it. It had pricing power. That is a big part of it. But the other thing is how they sold is they actually tied up very little capital because it was so seasonal. Mm-hmm. A lot of people don't like seasonal businesses, but they don't tie up a lot of capital. You know, um, I've talked before about because, yeah, you know, when your business times are versus when not. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you don't have to have a lot of th- I mean, there's some other businesses that are difficult that way. I'll give you an example of a business that's harder than people think to enter is um, toys. Um, Hamilton Beach Brands has some similarities, too. It's not toys, but it actually sells a lot during the Christmas season and stuff. But kitchenware. Uh, yeah. But toys are a good example because, um, and I think they mentioned the everything store, how much Amazon lost initially trying to do stuff in toys. Um, one, some of your inventory will will be the wrong purchases and you'll have to sell for like, you know, 10, 20 cents on the dollar just to clear it out afterwards. And um, there's really just one big season for it and selling it for Christmas. And you have to start making decisions for manufacturing overseas and stuff with a long lead time That's so that you're tying up working capital throughout the year, and then you get a big amount of free cash flow uh, in one part of the year. So if you look at the balance sheets, uh, the um, balance sheets and free cash flow statement, the cash flow statements of different toy companies, you'll see that they use cash for part of the year, and then they generate a lot of cash in another part of the year. Um, and that is through proper planning of all those sorts of things. Honestly, I mentioned Haynes Brands and even something like that. The working capital thing is a bit of an advantage because um, it's a, you actually have to tie up a significant amount of capital for someone else to try to enter the business um, and because there's no contracts. But it's easy to sell, mm-hmm. right? So like it will get sold. It's a product that will get sold so you can do it without a contract. But those businesses can be a, a little bit of a good competitive position that way. And we've talked about some before where you don't have a contract, 
I mean, the contract that means much for anything. I mean, ad agencies and stuff, like I said, you would fire them and be done in a matter of weeks and stuff. But they it's usually better than having a contract. You don't have a contract um, to decide on selling basic things to Walmart and companies like that for underwear and T-shirts and things. But they really don't tend to change who they're buying from that way, mm-hmm. you know. So no one wants to ramp up and uh, invest hundreds of millions of dollars in working capital to serve someone without a contract to do it, you know? Whereas someone can win a defense contract thing if, if as long as your customer thinks that you can do it, then you don't need to do all the working capital stuff ahead of time, you know? Mm-hmm. One thing I wanted to stress is just like reading, right? You shouldn't just read to take in information. You should really read to understand what you're reading. When you're looking at the numbers and you see, for example, high gross margins or, you know, quick turns or uh, the inventory turns over a lot, really use that as a lead to go and understand how that is happening. And you could also compare it to competitors and really just try to learn more about the business from that perspective. I think that's the most important thing because sometimes when we get certain questions that come in, um, it's basically all on you know numbers right they're not right. using their actual brain to under- understand intuitively well why is this happening how is this happening why is this good for the business or why is this bad for the business so really just use all the things that we just talked about as a lead and then kind of go from there yeah you want to put in like um maybe uh granger or um msc industrial one of those Granger is a good example because people know it sells very boring stuff. What's uh, the ticker? GWW, I think. Yeah, that's right. Uh, yeah. So this is a good example. You can see the return on invested capital there. It's okay. It's not amazing, but it's rarely, it's like never less than 10%, but it's rarely more than 20%. You apply some taxes to that and all of that sort of thing, and it's a good but not amazing return. But people that I've talked to are always horrified by how high their gross margins are. They can't believe it. They have gross margins as higher, higher than many manufacturers of much more uh, proprietary sorts of things. What's interesting here is how broad the distribution of what they're doing is, but how slow turning some of it is. So it's available. Now, they have things in their catalog that you can buy that they don't really own. So they have some, so a few things. One, the gross margins are good because of some private label stuff, mm-hmm. which is the same as Cisco and all those. Over the years, they try to do more and more private label. That helps your gross margins a little bit. Um, but then the other issue is the turns aren't amazing, as we said, with the returns on invested capital. So the truth is, with those gross margins, as good as they are, um, being around 40% or something, we can find other companies that have much better gross margins than that. In fact, they have gross margins of like 40%, and we can find some supermarkets that have gross margins closer to 25%, but have the same returns on invested capital. Now, why is that? Because they're turning faster. Yes. Right? Because Granger for a lot of its catalog has to buy something and hold it in inventory for you to be to make sure that it's available for you. And this is can be extremely boring stuff. I mean some of the stuff we're talking about could be light bulbs, batteries, mops, things like that. Right? I'm talking as dull as that. But as you compare that to a popular supermarket, it is going to sell through on those shelves very fast with what it has. Now, there are rural type um, uh, locations that are not as attractive. And I've talked a little bit before about how some businesses uh, don't work as well, even though people think, well, you'd have less competition, so it works as well. Actually, having a uh, like a supermarket, for instance, in a rural area isn't as effective uh, economically. Even though your competition would be lower, in theory, um, it would be very low. You, it would be hard to generate high gross margins because you could not turn fast enough. You have a minimum level of inventory that you have to keep to offer people a wide selection. And then the question becomes, how high can I price this stuff? Can you price bread at three times more expensive just because we're in a really rural area and I'm your only choice? 
there comes a point where you can't do that. Mm-hmm. You can't just price everything at much higher prices at bigger markups because you're in an area that's tougher that way. So suburban type locations are more attractive for a business like that. Um, the, the one that people always um, had talked to me about was a company that uh, was Alco Stores. Duckwall Alco was the name of the company. And it was often a net net. But the one thing that I was would tell people about, you know, it, it would make money occasionally. It met a lot of the requirements. And if you bought it at a deep enough discount, yeah, it's a net net and it might work. But one thing to be a little careful about with that is, honestly, the inventory when it was at their stores uh, was worth less than the inventory in general. Meaning that in a warehouse somewhere else in the country, the same products actually are worth more. In a sense, it's like if you have like a oil well somewhere or whatever, and you have to factor in the transportation costs that really your oil, you can only profit as much as what it costs you after it gets to wherever against the price of those things. So if someone's closer, then they have an advantage over you in terms of the pricing. And same sort of thing here where these stores, it was less attractive because if you have a Christmas toy in some place that's very rural and stuff that has to have a wide enough selection, it actually is not as attractive as having the same thing in a suburban location. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in a sense, it's liquidation value could be poor. Like, um, and mostly you want to look at net nets where the reverse is true where um, it looks like you're getting a price that's liquidation type value and this business model should be better than that at times, right? You don't want a business model that's clearly inferior to that. So with the gross margin thing, if you look, there are some things that have very fast turns. Like if you had a, um, the best example, I guess, would be if you had a company that just distributes cigarettes, um, they would have gross margins in like the maybe 5% range or something like that. Because it would just be to their customers buying and then selling it that way and with incredibly fast turns. Mm -hmm. Um, Very narrow selection and very fast turning. Um, Most things like that, you have to have a pretty wide selection. Like the supermarket stuff, the issue with supermarkets with furniture is the wide selection. Obviously, for certain products, it would be easy to have fast turns, but you have to offer enough choice. You know, they can't, you can't just sell Campbell's tomato soup. You have to sell 20 different kinds of Campbell's, Mm -hmm. you know. I mean, if you, customers happy. if you look at like Costco, for example, they're famously known for having lower margins, but the returns on capital are so high. Yes. As well. And and Costco is an even more complicated example because they um, do the stuff where they, they price basically on a markup mm-hmm. and they really are just making their money on the membership yeah. stuff. Subscription business. <laughs> yeah. But if you notice the returns on invested capital are not very different than Granger's. Mm-hmm. Right. So totally different gross margin, right? Than Granger. So what is Costco's gross margins? Thirteen percent, right? And Granger's was in the thirty 30s, to forty, yeah. yeah, percent range. And we just talked about supermarkets in the twenty to thirty percent range. All of them have similar returns on invested capital. If anything, actually, the one in the middle would have the highest. I would say the best supermarket would be better than Costco or Granger. Difference though is Costco's ability to reinvest it all, mm-hmm. which is what makes Costco exciting. It's not Costco's returns on invested capital. Costco's business model is good. It's not great. Um, it's a very good business model because you can keep reinvesting at good returns on capital. And so if you have a business that can keep getting 10 to 20% returns and invest it all, that's amazing because opportunity cost for all of us here is less than that. So we can make more money by getting into something with 10 to 20% because that's not, you know, what you can get in bonds and stocks and things like that. Um, so it's the reinvestment opportunity. But when you compare that to what was C's returns on invested capital, it's this is not good, mm-hmm. right? But C's could never take more capital. So Costco becomes the bigger, more successful business than C's because it can take all that capital over time, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but if you look, you can look at their returns and get an idea for the turns that way. Um, and that was what I suggest is actually figuring out yourself, like pen and paper if you have to, writing on it, 
to figure it out because you can basically do it by looking at the margins because operating margins will work for you because operating margins are at least giving you information that is probably being used in the return on invested capital calculation is probably operating income divided by total uh, invested capital. So if you look at those two items, the operating margin and the return on invested capital at some place like quick FS, that gives you a clue about the turns. Okay, so we have 3% operating margin and right. return on invested capital for 2020 was 25%. Right, so we are talking, and we can go to the balance sheet to see information about that, but it gives you an idea the turns are very high. Um, so you balance sheet- Because items, they have such high return on capital, but lower margins. Right, yeah. so manufacturer, often the numbers would be very similar uh, to being the same. Let me think of a manufacturer that would be. Um, you could do like um, do a cereal company. Uh, no, not a cereal company. Uh, Campbell's, Kellogg. Yeah, you could do like Kellogg or something. Yeah, if we see it closer. So, what's their operating margin? Twelve point eight percent. Okay, and what's their return on invested capital? Ten percent. Yeah, so that's more typical of manufacturer. Manufacturer, you're going to find many manufacturers where the operating margin and the return on invested capital are similar. Uh, many of them. Which? How do you interpret that? Uh, Slow turns. Yeah, so if we look, the big advantage for a manufacturer that you're going to see is the gap between the gross profit and the operating margin. So th how little of their sales go to operating expenses. So even something like uh, Kellogg, which is a successful um, cereal company, is its gross margins are not really going to be much better than less successful cereal companies. Uh, I mean, you can't think of many right now because it's more of an oligopoly. Mm -hmm. But it, it, Anything that sells into the same sort of customers they do is going to have gross margins that are pretty similar to that. The difference is going to be they don't generate enough sales to cover the um, operating expenses, and so their operating margin isn't going to look as good, which we can see here. So that's similar to Nebraska Furniture Mart we were talking about. By generating more sales, this is a difficult thing. When we talk about turns, it's a ratio. And so um, although when I say it, it might sound to you like sales divided by net tangible assets or something just means that's one ratio. But what it really means is having higher sales versus everything because it's part of the ratio. It's the same as like PE. If something has a higher PE, it doesn't just mean that its PE is high. It tends to mean that its price is just generally higher than something else, you know? Uh, same idea here. And so what that gives you a hint is that they their operating margin comes from the fact that they generate more sales um, versus other companies uh, for the same amount of expenses, which is usually what happens. And so what you'll see is that the operating margin is usually going to be lower for a less successful food company. But the gross margin isn't going to be that much different. Um, but what's going to happen is there's going to be more sales relative to capital invested in the business and to the amount of uh, expenses that they have, right? But the gross number isn't going to change as dramatically usually. The gross margin number is a pretty basic number in terms of a business, it's usually pretty, like, what is your business model and all that is going to determine a lot of the gross margin. You're not mm -hmm. going to see it dramatically change. Mm -hmm. There are exceptions. If you have, like, one location or something, it could change if you've got overhead cost absorption in your gross margin, things like that. But it shouldn't be radically changing. Um, the interesting thing about this company is you can go back and find data from 60 years ago because it's been a public company for a long time. It's the same. Their margins are the same now as they were, like, literally 60, 70 years ago. Mm -hmm. So what do you typically like to see then? When you're looking at companies, what catches your eyes? So I would say a stable return on invested capital. Um, if it had to be between margins and turns, um, margins would be preferable in the same way that having like pricing power 
uh, versus having low costs, I would generally prefer some pricing power. You can get it from either side. So if you have good margins, it could be because you have the ability to price better, mm -hmm. um, or it could be because you have lower costs for some reason, whether that's sourcing or whatever. Um, in, mathematically, they're the same thing. Shouldn't matter. And same thing with turns versus um, margins. It shouldn't matter if you can increase your turns, then you shouldn't care. And in some businesses, it might be better to have higher turns. You know, like uh, retail, where you're aiming for low prices, it might be better to have better uh, to have lower turns. But in general, I think margins will be more stable for most businesses. And the way where you would see threats to a business, I would expect first to come in the form of turns. So that's the other thing that if you look for signs of a business deteriorating. I think you'll see the deterioration first in turns, next in uh, gross profitability, and lastly, I think sales. So turns because what there's not a lot of demand, and then you could see it in gross profitability because maybe they're having to discount their prices. I think in general, what management will do in a lot of these businesses that you look at is they will accept carrying more inventory, receivables being um, slower in terms of uh, tying up more capital mm -hmm. and networking capital. So also being uh, not using liabilities as well and things like that. You'll see a deterioration in that first. Okay. And then a deterioration in gross profitability next. And lastly, a deterioration in sales. Mm -hmm. I think most companies will protect sales more than anything else and not be as careful about the profitability of it. Now, if Warren Buffett's running the company, it might be different. But most companies don't like to see sales decline at all. Sure. So they don't like a year in which sales were down 1%, but actually returns on capital rose quite a bit. Uh, if you look at Buffett's early days at Berkshire, you could have a year where sales are down 10% or something, but gross profit goes actually, you actually made a little bit more in gross profit than you did the year before, and you unlocked all this working capital. Mm -hmm. That's not how people running a business normally think. They want to increase their sales. And so you eventually get to the point of having lower quality sales growth. Uh, a lot of times when you see really bad business uh, things headed towards bankruptcy and stuff, it may surprise people. It is not usually really bad revenue growth figures that start falling apart. Sometimes it is for like a faddish business or something, but usually it's really badly deteriorating revenue uh, growth characteristics. So even if you look at the history of like Blockbuster or something, it would amaze you how fast they were growing for how long, given what you know about technology and all that. But you can see real deterioration in the earning stuff um, in terms of the the profitability. So if you look at that, like even if you just do something as simple as looking at the bottom line of return on invested capital, and you see a business over 10 years, which they have quick FS, or if you become a member, you get 20 years, you know, and you can look at it. That, that, nice plug. Um, that row, if that is decreasing... Um, or staying, you know, or staying the same, and you can see the chart. I mean, it's very easy on the chart one uh, if we go back to the overview uh, to the website, um, because they do show you just in graph form what it looked like. Mm -hmm. So you can see for the most part, uh, like with Kellogg, it was improving for a period there. There was some deterioration after there. It's been much messier that way. We saw very good figures with Costco, right? Um, you could put in for any company that you might think of. Uh, you can want to go back to Costco, sure. So that's good. It's been getting better. Yeah. Right. It's been getting better, stepping up, but very consistently, um, uh, almost, it, it seems non-cyclical in the sense that it's improving all the time, uh, but very gradually and very stably, and only from period, from about 10 to You want to look at a cyclical? Sure. <laughs> yeah. So Micron is a good example here. Yeah. So it has many years where it doesn't have any profitability. It's completely cyclical that way. It has a few years where it makes huge amounts of profits, which generally uh, suggests that it makes pro to me 
you know, other people argue about this and maybe it's different in this most recent time. And you can see in each cycle recently, they've made more in the next cycle than they did before. Higher returns like Apple, not just more. So each cycle has been more extreme in the high points afterwards. And so there is a sign of the cycle improving. I've actually looked at numbers from Micron going all the way back to like more like the beginning. They're, they're not good even if we go much further back than this, if we go another 20 years back. Um, heavily cyclical, making extreme profitability in periods of shortage for the industry. Uh, which if you're a hedge fund or you're an investor who is betting on some sort of thing about the the cycle and the market mm-hmm. and stuff can be very successful because look, the stock gets incredibly cheap. I mean, we're talking like, you know, it can be like net net type cheap at the worst point in the cycle. And it seems to have very bad returns on capital. And then it has extremely high returns later. So if you look at, you have a return on invested capital there? Yeah. So that's up yeah. Here. Yep. So back in 2011, you could even see it. I mean, like 1.5% return mm-hmm. on invested capital. Right. And then it had a period. And in good years, it's like 22% or 21%. Right. But it's had, you know, a few good years out of 10. Mm-hmm. Right. And then, um, and it's even, even then, a good year is half of a great year. Right. Uh, if we saw for Costco, a bad year is half of the best year. Mm-hmm. For Micron, in the middle of the boom, say a boom lasts three years. Right. Um, it, I'm not even sure that it really does, but let's say it does. The cycle is probably you know closer to half of that like closer to maybe two years or one year um but it would you would detect it in each of three years fiscally so um yeah i mean it's getting as much variation in that period of time as costco gets in 30 years in three years they have as much variation as costco in 30 but the market cap's gone from about 5 billion to 50 billion correct yeah and if you look at things like sales and all that it can be even more extreme because it's uh this, the sales numbers aren't as big as... Oh, I'm might. sorry, $85 billion today. <laughs> it, yeah. yeah. The sales numbers don't vary as much as you might think, right? Mm-hmm. So in, in terms of sales, I mean, we can see even somewhat similar numbers of sales giving you very different profitability, mm-hmm. right? Because let's see, what's sales up four times or something in 10 years? What's sales yeah. up? Yeah, mm-hmm. sure. All right. And yet, what's the market cap up in 10 years? It was $5.8 billion to, 5. billion to $8.5 billion. I'm sorry. Yeah, $5 billion to $85 billion right okay so you've had an increase in sales that's more than an increase in market cap that's more than four times the increase in sales Mm -hmm. more than that yeah so you know even if you were able to predict sales correctly and thought the price to sales ratio should be the same it's actually four times different you can make all your return in a stock by a four times increase in multiple with no change in sales so if you had just been able to predict the the situation cyclically uh, without having any predictions about what sales the company would achieve or how big the market would be or anything, then you'd make a lot of money. So it's pre- predicting the cyclicality of it that mm-hmm. way. And that makes it really confusing if you look at the cash flow statement. So if you look at the cash flow statement, you can see that too, um, that there will be, right? So there's extreme cyclicality in terms of having certain years. Um, I mean, there's years where they don't have free cash flow because if you look, the, the, the cash flow from operations is actually quite a bit lower than the CapEx. Mm-hmm. Um, the company does grow, but it doesn't grow by some huge amount. I would I would say there's years. Looks like they're plowing a majority of the capital back into the business. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, and that's always the risk, right? So if you have a high, generally historically, right, in an industry, high CapEx in boom years is very low returning, right? Because bust years are coming soon. Mm-hmm. And you just made the CapEx spending now. Um, so it can be a danger. So if you treat that as being fully as valuable as it seems to be, it may turn out that's not true. Whereas the cap, the same amount of capex spent in a bad year might end up to be more valuable than a lot of capex spent in a good year. That's always the argument against um, long run 
these kinds of cyclical companies because the risk, right, is they might spend to expand the business and buy back their stock. That's the two, right? And if they do both of the, if they, which is fine, but if they instead do that not when they need, should, right? We don't buy back the stock when the stock is cheap. We don't spend on CapEx when we think we can get a good return. Instead, if we generate a lot of cash flow, we got to use it. So we use it to buy back the stock and to do CapEx. The problem is if you generate a lot of free cash flow in a boom year, both your CapEx and your stock buybacks are likely to have very low returns, right? Um, for lots of reasons, including like CapEx and stuff would tend to be overly expensive in those years because there'll be shortages in other parts of the industry, right? Mm-hmm. Like if you're having a boom year in home building or something. I was going to say, you're seeing that right now with, yeah. with lumber costs right. and materials. So you try to do any CapEx anywhere in the industry, all your CapEx costs might be inflated, mm-hmm. right? And so that tends to happen with a shortage all through the line, right? Like if you're trying to expand a mine and everyone's trying to expand a mine, then all the equipment you're going to buy to expand the mine is is inflated in price and all that. So that's a danger in the in the cyclicality of it, right? And you have to adjust for that. It's much harder for you to those out. Like what are the turns here? You know, what's the returns on net tangible assets and all that? It's very hard to calculate. Here, though, you can see where the cyclicality is, right? If we go to the overview, you'll see this is a very unusual company. Graph. It's in gross margin, right? Mm-hmm. That is like unheard of to give you an idea of the cyclicality. So there's lots of cyclical results in a company and they're amplified along the way. So we're used to seeing very cyclical like EBIT numbers or very cyclical returns on capital numbers because the amount of capital is changing, the amount of um, the bottom line is changing because there's fixed costs. This is this is completely in terms of pricing. This has commodity-like characteristics that you don't see in non-commodity businesses at all. It's like, like 50% up, 50% right. down. So if we look at gross margin, what's the low gross margin years look like? 11%. What are the good gross margin years? 45%. Yeah. yeah it's massive. So the reason why the price to sales increased four times or more is because the gross profitability is four times or more higher. So to give people an idea of that, they sell $1 worth of sales in one year. Sometimes they're making 11 cents on that in terms of the contribution. It's even more actually because on a marginal basis, it would be even higher. We're getting it on an average basis. But, um, you know, that one extra item that you sold generates a contribution to profitability, a marginal contribution, which is like 11 cents or something. And in another year, we're talking close to 50 cents. So you could sell the same product basically and sometimes be making a profit of, you know, uh, 10 cents, sometimes 50 cents, uh, whether it's boom or bust basically. And that's what commodity type things look like because in some years there's an oversupply and in some years there's a shortage. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that that if you look at their entire history, the profitability tends to be focused in a very small number of years here, right? Um when we talk about turns, I think it's much easier to apply them to things that are very, very stable, to Costco, um, more so than anything, but to a furniture company to some extent, you know, a supermarket. There's some cyclicality even with Nebraska Furniture Mart, but their earnings aren't that cyclical if you look in the long run. Um, car dealers are an important one in terms of their turns to look at. Um, and improving those turns over time is a key part of making better returns on invested capital through all, all parts of the cycle, especially what it looks like in the worst year. That's kind of a big advantage that Costco has. Costco's worst year doesn't really destroy value. Their worst year is like a 10% return on invested mm-hmm. capital kind of year. And that's usually from having good enough turns. Um, actually losing money usually means you have like a bad business. You know, that's different. Sure. But there are companies that get stuck that we could see. Um, well, we talked about like Lakeland Industries and companies like yeah. that. So mm-hmm. those are ones that historically have had, I would say, not great economics. And so they tend to be profitable 
There's another one. What was it Boss Holdings? Um, there's there's a bunch of them that have sometimes been net nets that tend to make some money, but I would say they don't create any value. In fact, on an economic basis, they kind of destroy value in that taking the money out of the business and putting it to something else, liquidating it essentially, uh, actually would have made you more money. Like capital reallocation. Yeah, like yeah. if you were 100% owner of the business, liquidating it and going out and buying a stock portfolio uh-huh, sure. would be better than continuing in this business, right? Because their return on invested capital was usually poor, even though they usually didn't lose money. You know, people always imagine net nets and things like that as being money losing businesses. For the most part, a lot of these didn't lose money. In fact, uh, most of them, I'd say, uh, a lot of the better net nets have a lot better history of profitability than Micron, for instance. But they don't have, except for this COVID year, they don't have a shortage year where they have huge money making, mm-hmm. right? So they don't have those boom years. Their worst years are actually better than a commodity type company like Micron. But they're their um, best years are never that good. And it's because of things that are more basic to the company in terms of turns and stuff like that. Very often, it's tying up too much capital to generate too poor returns. So if we look like, what do their gross margins look like historically without the COVID year? The 10-year median gross margin was 34%, 35%. And then last year was 50%. Right. Yeah. So it's similar type numbers to Kellogg, but only about two-thirds or so of the EBIT, maybe even half the EBIT. And the return on capital. Return as a capital is terrible, yeah. But right. last year, obviously, it was, it was, it was 48%. But yeah. prior years, the average was uh, 3%. Right. So if you think about it, on a gross basis, they're doing similar to like a Kellogg, right? But on an operating basis, they're doing half, two-thirds as well. So their sales are much lower versus operating uh, numbers. And then they're tying up too much capital. Mm-hmm. So it's just a warning that in a sense of like margins, what do margins mean? Margins that, that really matter in terms of how you can price your product and everything are really gross margins. And actually their numbers and stuff are not that different than some branded manufacturing companies. But the amount of sales you're generating versus the amount of assets you're tying up is just bad um, historically. And that makes a big difference in terms of your returns. As you can see, they're mostly a single digit type returning return on invested capital. So their best year before COVID is usually below Kellogg's worst year. And over decades, that makes a huge difference between a company that destroys value and one that preserves it or even compounds it. So, I mean, if let's say you were a consultant, for example, right, Mm -hmm. would you look at the situation and tell them to stop buying so much inventory to try to fix their internal controls on how they go about doing that or about Mm -hmm. sourcing it? Is that what the first thing you would do? Yeah, really small companies that I see the most common things are, I think, working capital issues. Um, so you want to like ask the questions thing. about like, if it's justified by the sales, does it create sales that otherwise wouldn't, um, things like that. So it might make sense in the case of things like we have to have this selection, like retailers, we have to have the selection to be able to sell other stuff. This is what our customers need. So this degree of being this broad is necessary. We know that some of our products, um, that, you know, we have to carry a certain amount of Celsius even though we know that certain SKUs sell faster than others mm-hmm. and stuff. Um, that could be legitimate. But a lot of cases, it may not be. A lot of companies, you'd be surprised how many, how small the number of SKUs they have that sell, that generate a lot of profit versus others. Um, so, you know, 20% or less of them could be generating almost, it could probably be generating like all the profit for some companies. Um So, it, and then, like we said, in terms of actual management of um of working capital, which is receivables to some extent, and inventory. And, and that's also a thing that you can look at in terms of bargaining power. In some industries, it is easier to get sales 
if you're building up inventory and, and receivables too much, especially with the receivables in some industries. So um, you're offering more uh, advantageous um, credit terms. And in those cases, you're really becoming a creditor. You know, you're really becoming a lender into your industry by doing that. You're taking actual credit risk and stuff. And you're and you're just using opportunity costs of money that way. Um, and for if you have small business customers and stuff, that may get you sales. It's interesting how sometimes it's almost like a volume play, how it could be almost intoxicating and ruin businesses. And we've talked a lot about that, right? It's like with the private label thing with food packaging companies. Right. Sometimes companies destroy their brand because they go too much into that because they get seduced by the amount of volume and revenue that could come out of it. But then they just destroy their brand by doing that. Right. Yeah. And so that's always a question of like the quality of the sales, right? Mm -hmm. That we were just talking about the quality of how, how well you do selling that stuff in terms of what actual profits is it contributes and that can be quality a few different ways it can be consistency of how long it lasts so a lot of times companies enter in something that they actually in a non-boom period will decide to leave but then in other things it can be like that especially dealing with a company where you don't have a lot of bargaining power like the private label thing we we're talking about um it can be that in the long run you don't really have a lot of bargaining power with them and so it turns out that the quality of those sales is not as good in contributing to profitability mm -hmm. um a lot of times going to another country is that way for companies it's easy for them to get some sales in another country initially, but they don't get it to the scale that they need and they never get the profitability that they have in their home country. And in the long run, putting the capital abroad doesn't work as well because um, it never got up to that critical mass that it needed. But it's obviously easy to sell the first few things there. Sure. To penetrate 1% of the population there when you have you know 30% at home or whatever is not difficult, but you never get to the scale that you need to make it profitable, right? And especially you tie up too much capital doing that usually um, because you need dedicated capital to do that. Got it. Cool. Well, I want to thank everybody so much for tuning in with the both of us on the Focus Compounding Podcast. Wherever you are listening or watching, hit the subscribe button, leave us a rating review. If you're watching on the screen right now and mm -hmm. everything we talked about today was all through QuickFS, go to quickfs.net uh, for free. You could look at 10-year financials, uh, but if you do sign up, you could pull 20-year financials, which is what Jeff and I use every single day. Tell them you came from Focus Compounding in the checkout. I want to thank everybody so much for tuning in, and we will see you in the next podcast.